History, the bite-sized birthday biography podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Mira. This is a podcast which shines a spotlight on a person born on this day at some point in history somewhere in the world who made a positive lasting impact. Today, November 11th, we're going to celebrate the birth and life of civil rights activist Daisy Bates. She was born on this day in 1914. Trigger warning, the beginning of our episode today does include a mention of sexual assault. So Daisy Bates had about as horrible of a childhood as someone could have. She was born in Hudding, Arkansas to mother Hezekiah Gatson and father Millie Riley. When Daisy was a few months old, her mother Hezekiah was walking home from work and she was kidnapped by three white men, gang raped, murdered, and her body was thrown into a pond where it was later found. For unclear reasons, Daisy's father um, Millie decided that he no longer wanted anything to do with his infant daughter and he abandoned her. So Hezekiah's friends, Orly and Susie Smith, stepped in to raise the orphan Daisy. Orly was a very loving adopted father to Daisy and treated her like she was his own child. But Susie, on the other hand, was super abusive and she would beat and whip the little girl whenever she did something wrong. When Daisy was eight years old, she learned about what happened to her mom. And from that moment, she felt that she had one goal in life, and that was to find the men that did this to her mother. Later, she ran into a drunk man at the commissary, and the way that he looked at her, it was a small enough town that pretty much everyone knew everyone, and everyone would certainly know the girl in town who lost both of her parents. Daisy could tell by the way he looked at her that he was one of the three men. And from then on, Daisy would go to the commissary as often as she could just to stare at this guy silently and fiercely until one day he tearfully pleaded to her, please, for the love of God, let me alone. She didn't, and he later drank himself to death in an alley. All this naturally gave her an innate hatred of white people. And it wasn't until she was at the deathbed of her adopted father, Orly, when she was a teen, that he gave her some wisdom that would change her life. He said, Daisy, you're filled with hatred. Hate can destroy you. Don't hate white people just because they're white. If you hate, make it count for something. Hate the humiliation that we are living under in the South. Hate the discrimination that eats away at the South. Hate the discrimination that eats away at the soul of every black man and woman. Hate the insults hurled at us by white scum. And then try to do something about it, or your hate won't spell a thing. When Daisy was 17, she started dating a guy named Lucius Bates, who was an insurance salesman. Lucius was actually married at that time to someone named Cassandra, and he would not divorce Cassandra for another 10 years in 1941. Lucius and Daisy would marry the following year, and then they moved to Little Rock. Their dream was to start a newspaper there, and the first issue of the Arkansas State Press came out in May. It was a civil rights paper that became one of the most prominent equality advocacy papers in the state. Daisy also started to get very involved with the NAACP at this time. When asked what she wanted to change in the system, her reply was the whole darn thing. So she becomes the president of the NAACP Arkansas Conference of Branches, and she focuses mostly on desegregation, specifically schools, her own experience with crappy segregated education being fresh in her mind. As a result, crosses were often lit on her front lawn by the KKK. Messages like, go back to Africa, were written in lighter fluid on her lawn. And once, a flaming cross was actually leaned up against her house. But thankfully, a neighbor put it out before it set her whole home on fire. 
After Brown versus Board of Ed, Daisy was tasked with helping to integrate the schools in Little Rock. It would be a three-stage plan with high school integrating first, then junior high, and lastly elementary school. But after two years, not one school in Little Rock had integrated. So in 1956, a lawsuit was filed against the district and they were ordered to integrate by September of 1957. And this was Daisy's moment. She took charge of the integration process, selecting nine high schoolers to be the first black students to enter Little Rock Central High School. The nine teens that she chose were Melba Patio Beals, Minnie Jean Brown, Elizabeth Eckford, Ernest Green, Gloria Ray Carlmark, Carlotta Walls Lanier, Thelma Mothershed, Terrence Roberts, and Jefferson Thomas. So it was now Daisy's job to be with these students every step of the way. Their first step was to enroll. And this was shut down by human piece of garbage, Governor Orville Faubus, who called out the National Guard to prevent the kids from entering the building. The eight students left to regroup, but one student, Elizabeth Eckford, who had not been informed that the group would be leaving because she didn't have a phone, and when she arrived late and alone, she had to brave the violent mob that had gathered there all by herself. She's the teen in the glasses holding the notebook with a bunch of yelling white women behind her that you most commonly see when you Google Little Rock Nine. So Elizabeth was trapped in this angry white mob, all saying they wanted to kill her, unsure where the rest of her group was, and thankfully, a kind-hearted reporter named Grace Lorch pulled her from the mob and safely escorted her back to the bus station. The next day, the group returned to the school altogether, flanked by ministers, and made it into the building using side entrances. As they were entering the building, a white girl hung out the window screaming that she wouldn't go to school with no N-words. Cars began to show up with people that didn't even live in Little Rock, climbing on top of their cars to scream and throw things. The cops showed up and they arrested 40 people, most of whom had started to throw things at them. Inside the school, the whole student body was feeling the crazy and Superintendent Virgil Blossom shut down the school for the day. President Eisenhower sent the Arkansas National Guard and an Air Force division to the school to ensure that it reopened and the Little Rock Nine were admitted. So the students finally had their first day of school, but it wasn't like this was the beginning of things getting better. Melba Patillo had acid thrown in her eyes, and while she was going to the bathroom, white girls set paper on fire and dropped it onto her from above the stall. Minnie Jean Brown was harassed by groups of boys in the lunchroom until she'd had enough, and she dropped a bowl of chili on them. The boys faced no consequences for calling her racial slurs, but Minnie Jean was suspended for six days. Daisy's house was the safe place for the Little Rock Nine. They were all required to check in there before and after school every day to make sure they were all safe, as well as to debrief on what had happened to them that day. She would drive them to school every day and escort them into the building to ensure they got to their classes safely. Martin Luther King sent them a telegram saying, The world opinion is with you. The moral conscience of millions of white Americans is with you. And when he came to town the following year for a conference, he stayed at the Bates' house. This step forward, though, was pushed back the following year as the Arkansas School Board voted to resegregate the schools. Uh, This lasted from 1958 to 1959. Now we call it the lost year. This was an initiative by Governor Faubus, who asked for a two and a half year long wait time on segregation. He then asked for permission to build private schools with the intent of moving all white kids to these new private schools and basically abandoning the public schools to the black kids. He was denied permission to build the private schools, which caused the white community of Little Rock to turn even harder against the black community. 
Finally, three segregationist school board members were fired and replaced with three more moderate ones, and the integration resumed. However, that lost year seemed to cement the hostile gap between white and black students, and the physical and emotional abuse continued. Because of Daisy's participation in the Little Rock Crisis, as it was dubbed, her newspaper circulation dropped drastically, and the paper was forced to close in 1959. Rocks were thrown through her window over and over again, and people mailed her bullets. After the pandemonium died down surrounding Little Rock, Daisy was elected to the executive committee of MLK's Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and she became the only woman to speak at the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. In 1968, Daisy moved to Mitchville, Arkansas. This was a super poor town. Huge black community, no real cohesive support for the community members. So she took a position as the director of the Mitchville Office of Equal Opportunity Self-Help Project. And through her hard work, she brought the town together. She helped create more jobs. And she basically turned the tide of the town. Her work led to the creation of new sewer and wastewater treatment systems, paved roads, and finally a community center. Lucius died in 1980, and Daisy revived their paper, the Arkansas State Press, in 1984, the same year she received an honorary law degree from the University of Arkansas Fayetteville. In 1986, the town of Little Rock unveiled the new Daisy Bates Elementary School and made the third Monday and Friday George Washington's birthday and Daisy Gatson Bates' day, and declared it a state holiday. Daisy passed away after several strokes on November 4, 1999. She was the focus of the 2012 PBS documentary, Daisy Bates, First Lady of Little Rock. My sources today were Wikipedia, the National Women's History Museum, and the Stanford University Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute. Thank you so much for joining me today for our birthday celebration of Daisy Bates. Please join me November 15th when we celebrate the birth and life of Dr. Sarah Josephine Baker, the medical detective who helped track down Typhoid Mary. See you then.